I told you I'm not waiting on the wall. You look way too good to leave this up to lie. <laughs> I don't want your heart, your soul, or your hands. I want your body, your body instead. Now, 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 take your clothes off. Daniel Bartholomew Poyser is a Toronto-based musician, conductor, and educator. A passionate communicator, Daniel brings clarity and meaning to the concert hall, fostering deep communications between audiences and performers. Daniel is concurrently the principal education conductor and community ambassador of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra and artist-in-residence and community ambassador of Symphony Nova Scotia. He served as assistant conductor of the Kitchener-Waterloo Symphony and associate conductor of the Thunder Bay Symphony Orchestra. Daniel has performed with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, Calgary Philharmonic, and has been re-invited to the San Francisco Symphony for six consecutive years and was cover conductor with the Washington National Opera in 2020. In the 2020 season, Daniel was scheduled to debut with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, the Regina Symphony Orchestra, Prince Edward Island Symphony Orchestra, and the Kamloops Symphony Orchestra. Daniel was recently the subject of a feature-length Canadian Broadcasting Corporation documentary. This documentary focused on Daniel's efforts to extend the boundaries of the orchestral music world through concerts for neurodiverse, prison, African diaspora, and LGBTQ2S plus populations. Daniel earned his bachelor's in music performance and education from the University of Calgary and his master of philosophy and performance from the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, England. Please see the CBC website for his Autism Spectrum concerts, Disruptor Conductor full documentary and trailer, and for the Thorgy Thor and the Thorchestra. You can also find out more about Daniel from his website, DanielBartholomewPoiser.com, or you can find him on Instagram, at DanielBartholomewPoiser. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, how's it going? Celine, how are you? Comment ça va? Oh, ça va, mon ami. after so many years. I know. Well, it was great to see you last year doing the CPO. Calgary Philharmonic, it was amazing yeah. to see you up there fulfilling your dream and... Uh, it was all the CPO, that was always the thing, right? It was all the CPO, CPO. How do you and Celine know one another, Daniel? Well, Celine and I were at the University of Calgary together. And I think Celine may have been one year ahead of me or so. We played, I, I can't remember exactly, but I know we, well, we, we played in wind ensemble. We played in symphonic band together. We did tours together and then youth orchestra. I think as well too. So no, really? Oh my gosh! I just, I, just, orchestra. I, I just wanted you. To, I just wanted you to be there. I know. So, I wanted to be there too. Um, but we performed <laughs> a lot together. <laughs> we performed a lot together and played together, and that. So it's going right back to university. Those formative years. Yes. One of the um, things that I remember most about you in the hallways is your always just joyous presence. You're always yeah. happy like this. And I saw, when I saw your uh, photograph for this, I was like, who is that? Because it doesn't look like you, so serious. And it was almost like a, you know, a GDP pose for your- <laughs> Oh yeah, which, oh, that's right. That's right, the picture that I gave, that's right. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, well, you know, standing in front of an orchestra for a while, that's what happens, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those are those really good years at UFC. Um, that's, I think that's where at that university and those instructors and a time period and all of us there, um, I think it was easier to be happy. Um, the world was so much different and there were problems, but there are different sorts of problems, different magnitudes. And that's really where my love of music, like the love, just the pure love of the thing 
uh, was really nurtured. So, yeah. yeah. No wonder you were so happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then you went really to Manchester. Yes. And I went to Manchester to study at the Royal Northern College of Music. Um, when I was at University of Calgary, there was a teacher there by the name of Dr. Glenn Price, and he had a wind ensemble conducting program that happened during the summer. And there was a teacher there by the name of Clark Rundell, and I just loved his teaching, the way he taught and what he taught. And because of him, I, wanted, I would have gone anywhere that he taught. If he taught in Manitoba, I would have gone there. If he taught in Saskatchewan, I would have gone there. If he taught in Rhode Island, I would have gone there. It just so happens that he taught in Manchester, England, so I went to follow a teacher. And, um, I was not wrong. I learned a lot of great stuff from at the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. It was hard. It was very. He's a hard teacher, but he's really, really, he's really, really great. I'm just not only about like the, the, like what you have to think about being a conductor musician, but how you like just very, very practical things, survival things. So yeah. So when you got back, your next step was to where? Where did you land? Back in so, Canada. So funnily enough, I taught my um, I, I taught for four years at. So education uh, major, right. Yeah I, did, I, so, yeah, I did my education degree, so chronologically, right? Because uh, it's important, because people are often like, well, how did you become a conductor, right? So I started off um, by doing four-year music degree, tuba performance, right? And then I did two years of education, and I taught for four years at a private Christian school in Calgary, taught music and French and some other things. Um, and then I did my master's degree. And then I went back to teaching, actually, because I wanted to pay off. I was still conducting, and I was conducting a chamber group in Calgary called Players Chamber Ensemble. Um, they made me the, the music director before I really knew what I was doing. Um, and we all worked it. It was a fantastic experience working with some wonderful string players from Mount Royal College in Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra and other teachers in the city. So I was teaching, I taught for about five years after getting my master's degree in conducting. And then at a certain point, uh, I was getting kind of sad and depressed because I thought, you know, my dream of becoming a conductor is kind of, as time goes by, it's becoming harder and harder to get out of education. And not that I wanted to get out of education because I'm still, I'm still a teacher, I can still teach. I loved it, but I also had these, I had these two competing sorts of things. So one of my friends, Rod Squance, wonderful Calgary percussionist, sat me down and he, well, he didn't sit me down, but we were sitting down. And he said, you know, Dan, you know, you kind of have to make a move at some point besides things. And I applied for a few workshops. I didn't get in anywhere at all. And um, I was pretty depressed. And then I had a coffee with Gareth Jones at a coffee shop in Marlou in Calgary. And he said, you know, Dan, just like give it a whirl. Just don't give up. Just apply for everything. So I applied for everything. That night, I applied for the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra Conducting Symposium with Alexander Micklethwaite. And I'd applied the year before. They didn't accept me. I applied that year, right after Gareth was like, hey, Dan, just give it a whirl. And I got in. And this was a workshop where they talked not only about, not only getting you to conduct the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, but also programming a season and public speaking and working with an agent and doing all this sorts of all the other things that you do as a conductor. And it's interesting, there's a book on flying. The preface to this book about flying for pilots is one of the things a pilot does is fly an airplane. Among other things, one of the things a pilot does is fly an airplane. They're also a mechanic. They're also a meteorologist. They're also a radio operator. They're also a medic. They're also, a, and as a conductor, one of the things you do is conduct an orchestra. That's like 8% of your time. In a COVID year, it's 0% of your time. But you're still so busy. So the, that symposium was about all these other things. It was great. I did pretty well. Um, I got in. 
uh, I got in with an agent who was in New York and which was exciting. He's like, I know an agent in New York. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. Um, he was able to help me get some auditions. And even though I didn't win any of those auditions, um, it got me up in front of orchestras and got me used to auditioning because you have to practice auditioning unless you're some crazy superstar conductor. Um, most of us have to practice auditions and just work at becoming better auditioning. So finally, I had a string of different auditions the next year after that, and I was able to get the job with Thunder Bay Symphony Orchestra. I was there for three years. Um, Chris Wilkinson, who was the general manager at that time, and Arthur Post was the music director. Together, we inaugurated the um, Concerts for Kids on the Autism Spectrum there, um, allowing modifications to the concerts to happen so that we could have people on the spectrum in partnership with Autism Thunder Bay come to those concerts. Um, when I started working with Symphony Nova Scotia five years ago, and three, five years ago, um, in different capacities, we inaugurated those concerts there as well too. Our focus has shifted somewhat, but we are now, um, but I was one of those places, like that's one of the reasons I've been able to have the documentaries because of the work I was doing in Symphony Nova Scotia with Chris um, over the years. Yeah, so, and now I went from Thunder Bay, in short, Thunder Bay to Kitchener Waterloo Symphony. We're doing more different types of interesting concerts. They gave me a lot of free reign with the, the education concerts and the, um, the education concerts and the family concerts and also like all sorts of regular programming as well too and they also gave um gave me lots of opportunities to conduct bigger works it's a bigger orchestra than thunder basin orchestra so there are other opportunities there and out of that um came opportunities with san francisco symphony which is great long story short this past christmas i had 14 concerts with san francisco symphony in nine days 14 concerts with SFS in nine days over four different programs, including Sandbox, which was one of the culminating moments in my career. It's like, wow! So I went from teaching, um, I went from teaching to be able to conduct San Francisco's New York Orchestra. Interesting point though, um, Dr. Price said one year, sometimes what looks like a step up is a step across, right? So I still am very, very proud of the fact that I am qualified and could be able right now to go and teach in a classroom in a high school like classroom get out your books you have a detention with like that kind of a teacher i can still do that and i'm still very proud of that and i still do that helps to keep my feet on the ground it's fun it's like now it's for now it's like teaching for sport so the question is why are so many musical markings in italian well, they're in Italian because the very first composers to use musical markings and to put them into their music were Italian. And then as people began playing this Italian music, they saw these markings and then they decided, that, well, why don't we standardize this so that everybody is just reading off the same music and understanding the same terms and the Italian terms caught on and they were just used after that point. So for many, many years, hundreds of years, uh, Italian markings were pretty much the standard. We end up being a little bit multilingual as musicians and uh, it's all because of those first Italian composers. Pardon? Sorry, was that, through, was that through the cadet program, the Royal Canadian? That was through Royal Canadian Air Cadets, which I maintain is one of the best youth development programs in the entire world. That's where I learned, um, that's where I first started teaching. So I started teaching when I was 13 years old. Right? So I've been teaching for a number of years. Um, so before I started working as a teacher, I was, I'd already been teaching for 12 years. No, 10 years. Started teaching when I was 23. Started teaching at age 13. Um, all the public speaking skills, right? Uh, learning six types of questions, follow-up, overhead, lead-off, direct, personal relay. That's, you know, you, learning those at age 14 and being in charge of other people. Um, 
like, you know, instructor personality, firm, fair, friendly. These are things that you had 10 years to practice before we started teaching them. And they all fall into the things you need as a leader, um, that you need as a leader um, of an orchestra or leading a classroom. Um, thinking about leading by example, um, thinking before you speak and how your words carry weight. Uh, what you're talking about before in terms of like having to be able to do 15 different things at once. I can't remember who said it, but they said, you, it's not enough to have a talent. Okay, you have a talent, okay, fine, great. You have to have a talent for your talent. So if you can't like nurture the ground of your talent and do the things that help your talent be able to, um, to flourish and take care of it and promote it correctly and wisely, boy, you're really gonna have a tough time and you, and you do see that, right? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and also the way that I identify with what you're saying is the audition process uh, as a professional actor is absolutely its own art form. And a lot of people that, are, that do not achieve your level of success and they have the dream like we all do, but they don't have the skin, the thick skin developed yet to actually muscle through all of that, right? Right. So that's, that's interesting because do you feel like we need to have a thick skin? I, I've thought about it. I feel like I have a really, really thin skin because I'm really sensitive. So maybe the thick skin is just keeping on going. Part of what makes an actor good at being an actor is the willingness mm -hmm. to be op open and vulnerable and sensitive. But you have, right. to, you have to protect that uh, because, right. because you're constantly saying, here's everything about me. You have to be a dynamic individual to make art a profession, I think. And that's my, my um, conducting coach, Ken Kiesler, said. He said that people on the podium who often have a lot of success are ones who are the most vulnerable. Maybe it's resiliency um, to keep like being flexible, but like the thick skin that's just like, oh, I am this, I have a persona. It doesn't let anything in. It also doesn't let things out, is what he talked about. And I, I found that to be true. Um, so maybe it is, is a function of resiliency. You know? Yeah, I think, I, like, probably. No, it's probably just a matter of wording. I think we have the same point. You know, it's, um, yeah, yeah. You, have to, you have to be strong as well as being, allowing yourself to be weak and vulnerable and open so that the truth can come out. But I don't think that I don't think that vulnerability is weakness, and that's something that we're starting to learn, right? Vulnerability yeah. is just an openness. And speaking Brene, of openness, uh, I was going to say, Brene Brown just walked through the room there, just the really ghost did. of Brene Brown. The there she went. Um, I was just going to say though, I was going to ask. Speaking of vulnerability and openness, um, Thorgy Thor and the Thorkestra, and how that has shifted. Uh, you made a decision and the CBC documentary is definitely all about this, but you have this, uh, you're trying to open doors. This is what I see that you are doing. You're a facilitator opening doors of opportunities to the orchestra and accessibility to the orchestra to audiences that would not necessarily be both interested or able to do um, go and have a concert experience. So can you talk a little bit about Thorgy Thor and the Thorchestra just very briefly and what that was encompassing for you and, and has this continued, this idea that you had started with Thorgy? Right. So um, first, I am trying to open doors, but the I, it's kind of like like when I say I, I think of all the people in Symphony Nova Scotia that worked with me on the Thorgy concert, uh, San Francisco Symphony doing Afrofusion working there. When they when in Toronto, they saw that I had done concerts for kids on the autism spectrum in Thunder Bay and in the Thunder Bay Symphony Orchestra and Symphony Nova Scotia, they latched on that. So behind what I am doing, people look at me, I get to, I get to be the figurehead. 
of all this stuff. So I get to be a figurehead of Afrofusion and the autism concerts and LGBTQ plus and, um, and, and prison concerts, great. But that's because there's every, all these orchestras, there's a team of people that are looking for somebody who wants to do this and that enjoys doing this. And I'm not the only one. So there's Marty and there's Melanie Lynn, there's others. Fine, I gotta say that. And like all my peeps that are, we're all doing this work. Fine. Um, Thor G. Thor came about a few years back, um, I guess 2017 or something like that. And Eric Mathis at Simon Scotia said, you know, Dan, concert with a drag queen do you think something like this can work? And it was one of those moments, I will take credit for this part, where it's like, what I think my skill is, my strength is being able to think of how a concept can work. And it's another, in terms of programming, one of those moments where Thorgy Thor Orchestra, Drag Queen Orchestra, and the program just went, not like individual pieces, but just went, yes, we can do it. And I know how I can make this work. And I know what we can do to have this be successful, right? And it was. Um, and I think what worked really well in that concert was a couple of things. First of all, just the chemistry between myself and Thorgy. Um, it's really important to hit the sweet spot of things, so like the sweet and the salty, right? So if you have a concert and it's all super, like everything all was in a major key, you know, you're missing something. But the most important thing they got was being in the same room with a hundreds of people that had the same experience of, as them in a, in, in a safe space, in a celebratory space, where they were, were able to queer the environment, queer the atmosphere, and queer the room in ways that had never been done before. That's what one of the main things was. And you put all those things together, you got a great show. Thor G. Thor is one of my favorite drag queens from RuPaul's Drag Race. She is a classically trained violinist and a huge star in the LGBTQ community. Thorgy is performing literally all over the planet. This makes her very hard to get a hold of, but I did. And she said, yes. I, it wasn't a proposal. She said yes to the concert. So I have to put these two cultures, drag audience and the orchestra audience together. Yeah. So I think opening those doors, querying the space was great. That's really important to me because of my journey as an LGBTQ to as plus, as well as a gay, as a gay guy, gay man. Um, really important to me uh, to be able to open those doors uh, really important also as a, as a black man to be able to open doors for black performers and for black music um just finished uh watching the funeral actually it was still it's still going but watching the first of many memorials for george floyd and i'm just incensed and um furious and thinking about what we need to do as artists to open doors and um is it like beyond being inclusive, like just being like radically justice focused, not only in our programming and in our feature of black artists and BIPOC artists and indigenous artists, but just not, not what we're doing, but like how we're doing it and how we're treating each other. Um, and I want to open doors, I'm going to open doors there. And yeah, and I have, I have been. And I'm encouraged now with the recent events to continue and to do it um, perhaps even on a different level. And uh, especially now that like fires are being lit. When it came to the orchestral world and becoming a conductor, who sparked you? Was there one, I mean, you had talked about Patricia Heitman as a, as a mentor, but who sparked you? Like when we went to WASB in 1999 in San Luis Obispo, and did that tour. Uh, 
what was it there? Was it was there somebody there? Because I know uh, Fred Fennell was there, and that was a big deal for a lot of people. What was the big deal for you that went, yes, this is definitely what I want to do? My grade two music teacher, Leona Pauls, taught us basic conducting patterns. And I remember being 13 years old and doing a project on Berlioz Symphony Fantastique and talking to my class about Lide Fixe, which, which tells you a lot about my life as a 13-year-old, tells you a little bit about, about my dating life as a 13-year-old. It's like, you know, would you like to learn more about Lide Fixe? Uh, I remember, and for that project with Madame Wilson, who, please forgive me for talking class all the time, I was a pretty, pretty bad student. Um, but for that project, I conducted like the last like the last minute or so in front of the class with the recording on of Symphony Fantastique. It was always kind of there and mostly as like as a fun thing. I was just always conducting. And if anything, I would say the thing that clinched it was there was <laughs> Teldeck did a recording of um, uh, historical conductors, great conductors of the past. And just watching these conductors, I don't think for me there was an aha moment. Just falling in love, just falling in love with the music. I knew I wanted to conduct because I love studying the music and understanding the music and being able to mold it, right? But then falling in love with it again. When you're working with a group of musicians where the two trumpet players have been sitting beside each other for over 20 years, when the flute player and the oboe player have been sitting beside each other for 40 years plus, and you realize, you like, or you look over at the violas and the seconds who've been playing together for, you know, half of your lifespan and you give a little gesture and they know exactly what you mean but more than that they know more what you mean than you know what you mean so you ask for like this and you hear it come out not only what you intended but even better than what you intended like when Greek took his concerto list and this was like oh you should try this try this try this <sighs> that's when you really fall in love with conducting I get to do an education concert with San Francisco Symphony, which means I get to do the same movement of Beethoven eight it was five times with San Francisco Symphony, twice a day. The learning that I get from that, the principal benefit, I'm sorry, is not to them of doing that. It's to, it's to me, I'm learning so much from that, right? It's like, here's how they do it, okay, try. And you know, I'm not trying like different tempos, different things each time, no, it's just like a little bit here and there. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, right? So what it feels like, it feels like um, with a wonderful professional orchestra, um, it feels like telepathy, kind of, because you're the, as long as you're not getting in the way, which we do as conductors, if you're not getting in the way, right, and you're working with them, um, then it's, it just feels like, because we're all, because we're all, we're all musicians, so we all know what this phrase can mean. So you just like hint at it and just like give a hint. And a musician will take it away. It's like, oh, you want A, B, C, or D? Oh, he's saying C, and everybody just goes, when it's working on. You know, when it's and I can give an example. Um, and this is again, it shows like the power of like good education. Dr. Price for conducting, he did this really, really, really interesting um, Beispiel or what would be uh, object lesson. He said, "Okay, everybody, I want you again get four musicians, four people from the band come up from the conducting class come up, and I want you all to sing Horkstar Grange. Grange. There was an old man from Lincolnshire Posey." So we all we all sing it. He's like, great. Now I want you to sing sing it again, and just I want you to move, just move, have fun, and show the phrasing all together. Nobody's you know just sing and show the phrasing. 
So we're having fun because we didn't know where he was going. So we're all singing, we're having fun, and we're moving, and we're enjoying the music. Great. He goes, okay, great. Now, you're a French horn player, you're a flute player, you're a tuba player, you're a saxophone player. Can you all now move as if move, but pretend that you're playing your instruments, right? And keep on having, so you're singing, but you're playing your instruments. So, everybody's moving, still having fun, we're laughing. He goes, okay, great. Now I want you to be the conductor. Everybody follow the conductor. So conductor starts, everybody stopped moving. Expression went to pretty much nil, and we all just watched. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what we do. It went from chamber music and us making music together to just like, Follow the conductor. Are we doing what that person wants? Ah, and he didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to say anything after that. The whole class was just like, oh, oh. So real conducting is then what he said next, which was, okay, now what I want you to do is conduct with them and go back to when you were all moved, like get that, that feel. We're all moving. We're all making music together and you're guiding things along. That's what you want to have it be. That's what I aim for. I don't get that all the time. Sorry, I don't. Don't get that all the time, you know? And I'm learning now, I'm learning, I've been conducting professionally for eight years now. I hope that if you were to ask the musicians that I work with regularly, I hope that they would say over time, he's able to help us more and more. We're able to make more music together rather than following. Not where I want to be. But that's what I work towards, right? That's the goal, is for us all to be making music. And yeah, there are times where you have to, okay, to, to hear the, right? But can you have everybody, can you, can you facilitate that? I think that's what, like, I think that's what the really great conductors are going to do. And that's what I aspire to do. I've always wanted to be working with this orchestral music, like a musician of the Western tradition. So I don't know of many Black, LGBTQ conductors in Canada. Yeah, basically, I had to come out as an orchestral conductor. What does a conductor do? <laughs> you know that everyone sitting on that stage behind you is, is the cream of the crop, and so you better bring your A-game. I want people to be healed by the music that they hear when they come to my concerts. I just sat there crying. I guess people probably thought I was crazy, but the music just touched me. The sexuality thing was an issue. When you are suppressing your actual desire, your voice, um, it affects all areas of your life. Storgy is a yes to performing and the first orchestral drag show in all of Canada. Oh, this guy's like crazy, like, but a good crazy. Who here has been to the symphony before? Any bridge in here? It's not gonna be anything like that tonight. When did art and specifically music enter your life? And then also, like, what was your favorite music when you first started to fall in love with it? So I started piano lessons probably age five or so. And I, I quit before, unfortunately, I quit before I got very good, right? So I'm not a concert pianist at all. I play for myself and for studying scores and for fun. Um, but I started at an early age, right? So I was exposed to it. My mom was always, you know, in Trinidad, which is, in Trinidad is, was a colony of, of the UK. So they got British education. Right. And part of that was part of that was orchestral music. So my mom and my aunts grew up with parang music, with calypso, um, with, with music by Paranderos. They, 
with, with classical music, with Bach. They grew up listening to Handel's Messiah during Christmas, as well as traditional Quran music, right? So I grew up when I go, you know, staying with my aunts in Brooklyn over a summer, where I spent a lot of time in Brooklyn with my aunts, would hear like a lot of Kenny G, a lot of Bach, a lot of Mozart, a lot of Baron, a lot of Sparrow, a lot of Bob Marley. And it was all just, it was totally normal. So for me now, when I'm to do the sorts of concerts, like collaborative concerts that I'm often asked to do, they'd be like, okay, we're gonna have like a piece by Bob Marley. Now we're gonna do a little bit of Bach. Okay, and here's like, it's just like, that's totally, that's totally normal because that's how I grew up. It was all just all in there. Um, so that love was nurtured in many different ways. If there was ever a moment for me, the moment was when I went from grade six to grade seven. They took us to uh, down to Branton Junior High School, took us way into the basement. There's this like cafeteria sort of area. And uh, they said, okay, now the band's gonna play because we had to pick our options, right? So for all the sixth graders in the room, they said, now the grade nine band is gonna play for you. And the grade nine band played John Williams' theme from Superman. And I don't know if I'd ever really heard people play live like that, um, up that close, but I was just, I just knew I had to do it. I was like, I'm taking band, I'm taking band. And that's where the instrumental part of the journey started. Interestingly enough, um, because of the music of John Williams, between grade 10 and uh, grade nine, grade 10, I was gonna quit music. I was going to quit music. I wanted to go into car design. And my teachers called me and they said, you know, just think about doing music because you really do seem to like it. You could have been helping Celine with her car all this time, but instead... All you this time. Yeah. All this time. You know, maybe I would have been in Germany with, with Pierre Schreier. Or Peter Schreier, I think his name was the designer there. Um, I think I made the right choice. So. You did. Were you only into orchestral types of music because that's how you were, what you were raised to play? Or did you, did you love you know, top 40 music. I mean, what was, what was, what were you really into when you were young? Oh, okay. Um, when I was younger, I really liked In Excess. Michael Hutchins was the lead singer. I really liked In Excess. They were one of the first bands that I really, really fell in love with. Um, Salt and Peppers, like some, like pretty basic, like uh, Soul to Soul. Um, like basic hip hop stuff. I was top, yeah, it was top 40 when I was a kid. Who do I love now? I love Dave Matthews. Such an incredible song, such an incredible songwriter. And I, what I love especially is the angularity of his melodies and the leaps, like ninths and like fifths and fourths and like in falsetto, like in the tone. He's just like all over. So it's so interesting to harmonize if I'm on a road trip singing in my car. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So interesting to, help, uh, to listen to. And really, the soundtrack of my life is Sufjan Stevens. The soundtrack of my life is Sufjan Stevens. Just, oh, for so many reasons. Um, his poetry, the way that he's not afraid of discussing death and sadness and grief in his music, and his mastery of tone, um, both tone in terms of like one song that is liter literally monotonous in terms of like one tone, one feel that he can sustain. His use of minimalism, when I think of um, Carrie Lowell, I, said John, I think it's John, my beloved. Um, oh my goodness. And then, and then, yeah, just the way he can even vary tone in pieces. It's so incredible. I love his music so much. I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. How do you actually feel about Sophia? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really do. You had to go into lockdown like all of us. 
to be quarantined and not be able to do what you love to do. What are your hopes coming out of this? I was with the Washington National Opera and we were two days away from opening night and we had to shutter everything and I had to drive home. And the opera was called Blue and it's by uh, a musical by Jeanine Tesori and the text is by, the libretto is by uh, Teswell Thompson and it's about an African-American police officer whose son is shot by another police officer. That is the opera that we are not able to mount. So came back from that, had that music going through my head a lot. Um, then we had Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and now um, George Floyd. Coming, we'll circle back to that. Uh, the lockdown itself, the first couple of weeks were actually, I had to quarantine because I was coming back to the United States. And I was able just to sit and reflect and think, which is not something I get to very often because oftentimes I'll be in three cities in the course of a week. So to be in one city in the course of a, two weeks was really, I was able to sit down and think. Um, for the first six weeks, I was really good because I'm very, I'm, I'm kind of an overworker a little bit. I'm very, very regimented and very structured. And I seem chaotic, but it's like, there's like gears that are running all the time, right? So I was up at 8.03 every morning. And then by 8.16, I'm doing my work. And by 9.12, I'm out of the shower. And I'm like, that's literally what it's like. I was able to do that for six weeks. And then other people, you know, started low and they went high. After six weeks, it's just like, and it's just like, a lot of what everybody's talking about, which is like the fatigue and things were really, really difficult. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at now, especially with the recent events. Um, I've managed to find my way out of that depression of where are we going and watching just all of my gigs and everything just evaporate for, for foreseeable future. It's been very, very, very difficult. It's very difficult um, because I also have administrative posts. I'm worried about the musicians that are in the orchestras. Um, I still have some facility to be able to do some teaching, right? What about uh, a young family? Like, what about two musicians who are both married working in an orchestra that just had a kid and had just got a house in the past two years? What are they going to do? That really, really worries me. And one of the main functions of a conductor is not only to create music, but to create jobs in the city, to create jobs, continue employment for the musicians. I dare say they're musicians. And I know that's like a possessive, um, which is controversial, but also because you have responsibility to those people that depending on you being the spokesperson and be thinking artistically long-term of the viability of their employment. Um, so I, sometimes I, I see that, like musicians and I see their children running through the hall. Oh, there's a great concert, Mr. Conductor. And I think, good Lord, how's my programming and the way that I conduct creating excitement that's going to keep employment happening for musicians. That's one of the responsibilities. Uh, with regards to current events, what I hope is going to happen is that the orchestras, the, the tip of the iceberg is always um, the main concerts. But every musician I know is always doing 50 other things and every orchestra organization is also doing 50 other things. And all these other things that we're doing, that's what we have to focus on right now because that's all we have to focus on right now. We have to because we have to. It's what we have. So, um, those are initiatives in the community are going to be what ground us in the community even more in, in small tangible ways so that people will when, when people now go to see the principal flute player on stage they will know that person because they will have met them in some other venue some other the flute player will have come to them and they've done a presentation according to whatever the flute player might be interested in but specifically with what's happening now is that there's going to be a push towards equality, inclusion, diversity, and not because we have to do these things because it's nice, although it is nice, because we have to do them, but because 
which is recognizing even more like the people in the communities can be served by an orchestra. The orchestra is a library of sounds that can be administered, so that can be applied to many different cultures, more than what we're just doing. How that's going to look, it's going to be it's going to be different, I think, coming up. Right. And I think the makeup of the orchestra is going to change not only on a conscious of time, but not only who's playing, but who's being played in terms of composers, who's sitting in the audience, who's making the decisions in terms of board's administration, and also the way that we do these things in the community. And I do think that um, race is going to be talked about and is going to be acted on. Um, much more in the future than it is now. I mean, my, my, my documentary is called Disruptor Conductor, right? So, okay, fair enough. Well, in five years, let's see what I've done. You know, let's see what I've done. Daniel, uh, you, you would always be welcomed on this show. I, I, you, you have a great energy about you. You've got a, a lot to say. It's really, really wonderful to be here. Thanks for listening to me talk about some of these things. Um, it's helpful to be able to articulate them. And it's great to see you know, to be reunited with a great friend. It's, um, cause yeah, you know, like we've been here, we've been, we've been working at the same, this thing that we love in this, in this crazy, crazy, crazy industry, you know? And I'm just glad that we're both, we're still in it together, so. Well, I'm super proud of where you've come. You've come a long way and you've worked very hard and the things that you're doing are just give me so much hope for our future because of what you're presenting to the world. Really that smile in the hallway is like, <laughs> now it's everywhere. It's amazing, Dan. It really is. I'm so, so proud that I was uh, at school with you and uh, able to share space with you growing into the amazing human being you've become. So thanks for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you, Celine. Thank you so much.